Hello. During the nearly two years we've been dealing with COVID, there's been a lot of speculation about the future of cities. Would offices close en masse and developers and landlords find themselves with unwanted property? Would the move from real world to online interaction take away the benefits of urban living? Would a desire for bigger homes and more green space drive people out into the suburbs and rural hinterland? More broadly, if, as we have often argued on this podcast, crisis is a catalyst for change, what should we want to change about our cities if they are to thrive? These questions, the immediate and the longer-term ones, are the subject of a new book from two high-profile American academics who spent their careers thinking about cities, public services, policy, political leadership. I think they make some powerful points, but there's also some things I think they may be missing. Who's right? To find out, keep listening. This is Bridges to the Future, the Big Ideas podcast, brought to you by the RSA with your host, Matthew Taylor. So I'm delighted to be joined by Edward Glazer. Edward, I'm assuming I can call you Ed. Of course you can. Great. Well known for your pioneering work on cities and amongst other things, you are Professor of Economics at Harvard and by David Cutler. Hi, David. Great to be with you. And you're a professor of applied economics also at Harvard. And your past roles include advising both President Clinton and President Obama. So let's start looking at this book, Survival of the City, Living and Thriving in an Age of Isolation. I want to get on to some of your policy prescriptions later. But but first of all, just your kind of prediction what do you think is going to change about cities as a direct consequence of this pandemic? Let, let me start with you, Ed. So I think we're still not entirely sure. The crystal ball is still murky because somewhat amazingly, the pandemic is still with us. Omicron is, is still working its way, highly contagious, although apparently less deadly, which is, which is good. But I do think there are things that we can be confident about. The techno-triumphalists who, you know, have confidently predicted the end of face-to-face contact and the end of cities that enable that contact for decades now are still wrong. It is not that hybrid work is not here to stay. Certainly many of us will indeed take meetings remotely going forward. And I certainly hope that there will be fewer trips to go to Chicago for a 40-minute meeting. But By and large, we are a social species that functions best when we actually can see with one another and can work with one another. That's true in terms of our offices, and it's true in terms of our life away from the office. And because cities work with something that is so inherently human, they are likely to survive and indeed mostly thrive despite the pandemic. And David, do you share that view? I do share that view. I think, though, a very, very big issue is going to be, do we get a handle on not just COVID and not just this variant of COVID, but on future pandemics as well? So cities look like they're holding up through COVID so far, but if this becomes a very regular occurrence and we have not just COVID, but deadlier strains that really could put us in a situation where people are much less interested in being in cities the way they are. The alternative would not be, I think, a return to rural living. I'm not sure that that would appeal to very many people. 
but it would instead be enclaves where rich people live in one enclave and middle-income people in a slightly less secure one and low-income people in whatever they can. That is a terrible future. And I think that's the real concern is if we hopefully will make it through COVID okay, but what happens if this becomes not a singular event, but a recurrent one? So David, you're part of your expertise, many areas that you have expertise in, but, but health policy is one you've written about a lot. And the first half of the book, more or less, is really about these kind of direct lessons that we should learn from COVID in terms particularly of, of health policy. So David, do you want to outline some of the things that you think we, we must learn and we must have in place before the next pandemic comes along? Yes. And Ed and I sort of thought about this and went back and forth on this quite a lot. Let me give you, I think, our three lessons about health policy and COVID. The first one is global, which is that the world was not prepared for a pandemic. If you compare our preparations for pandemic disease compared to our preparations for, say, nuclear war prevention, as a world, we were far better prepared to prevent nuclear war, which has not blissfully happened, than we were pandemic disease, which unfortunately has happened and shows signs of being continually possible. So we need to have institutions that look more like NATO, which kept the world away from nuclear war, and less like the World Health Organization, which was not up to the task of COVID as well as we would like. Second, at the national level, particularly in the U.S., what we've realized is that our U.S. healthcare system, and in many countries have realized the same, is far too focused on medical care, that is treatment of people when they're sick, than it is prevention of pandemic disease. So in the U.S., as in many countries, there's a distinction between medical care and public health, and medical care is extremely well-funded and public health is not. It really lives by a shoestring. And then, of course, if anything goes wrong, then the public health system falls apart. And that's what happened in the U.S., as happened in some other countries as well. So we need to think about medical care as less of a private good and more of a public good. So that's what our second lesson. And I think our third lesson is that it's really at the local level, which is if you go to any city anywhere in the world, New York, Boston, London, Chicago, San Francisco, Paris, Munich, wherever you want to go, Berlin, wherever you want to go, you will find areas where people live longer and areas where people live less long. And the gaps are absolutely huge. The gaps tend to be about 10 years of life expectancy, which is roughly the difference between everybody in some areas of a city smoking and nobody in some areas of a city smoking. So these absolutely immense differences. And that is very problematic because infectious diseases spread from people who are not as healthy as they might be. So COVID spread through people who were obese and had respiratory problems. Other diseases spread by smoking, other diseases spread by sharing needles, unsafe sexual contact, and so on. What we're learning is that an entire area is only as healthy as its least healthy people. And so every city is going to have to pay more attention and say, yeah, we used to say, yeah, I don't like it, but there's not much I can do. And now we're going to have to say, yes, I don't like it, and I'd better do something about it or else I'm putting all of us at risk. 
So I absolutely, I mean, I, I now run the body that represents all the different bits of the NHS. So I completely concurred with your arguments. But I just want to kind of probe this, this one about what you call a kind of NATO for health, you know, much stronger global organization that, that deals with health. And, and I think one of the things I was kind of toying with there is how do we go forward as we try to strengthen international institutions? Because it seems to me that if you want to do that, there are really two models. One is that you work with countries that you think you can trust and that are like yourself and where you can really build strong relationships, which is the NATO model or the European Union model. But the problem with that is that, as with climate change, pandemics don't restrict themselves to regions and they don't restrict themselves to democracies. So the alternative is, well, no, we genuinely need something that's global. And in order to do that, we're going to have to get agreement with regimes that are very different and that may be not quite as trustworthy. And the danger there is you end up with an institution that's much weaker. So how do we kind of deal with that? Either a partial institution that's strong or a global institution that's weak. That, that's what it feels like the choice is. It's an interesting question. And of course, what we need are institutions that are both global and strong. I think there's a trade which has to happen, which is the world needs to make some investment in the health of people in lower income, lower and middle income countries. So we need to help them prevent infectious disease in their own countries. And we need to clean up the water supply and we need to make sure there's adequate sewers and we need to make sure that antibiotics are available and not overused and so on. And so there, there are enormous needs and all that money, the money for that is going to come from rich countries because it doesn't exist in low and middle income countries. What we're suggesting is that in exchange for that, there are certain rules that one has to abide by. So the rules include things like monitoring infectious disease and alerting the world to it, and making sure that the country is not engaged in practices which have the potential to harm the world health. There's both that trade on the positive side, and I think there's also a stick, which is if we're unsure whether there is infectious disease somewhere that is capable of getting out, we as a world have to be able to say, you know, we just have to slow down tr trade in goods and trade in people with those areas. We can't have a situation where one airplane flight or one cargo ship could lead to another COVID. And so it's going to be incumbent upon us as a world to make sure that doesn't happen. And by the way, here's the money that will help make sure that doesn't happen. But this is your responsibility. If you want to be involved in the world at this level, this is what you have to do. Our hope and thought is that that will get the most participation. That is, it's not just here's money with no strings, but it's also not just you know, we care about you, so you don't have to do these things. It's really thinking about the world as something that has to come come together on this. I am struck that even though NATO was sort of an exclusive club, you know, that is, it was countries that, you know, start off as countries with most at stake, it actually over time had many, many countries that wanted to join, in fact, expanded its membership quite a lot. And even though that imposed significant obligations on those countries, it was still seen as such a benefit that folks around the world wanted to join. And that's, I think, the spirit we need to inculcate with respect to global pandemic prevention. Great. Well, let's move on to the kind of second half of the book, Ed. And I'm going to ask you and David to do something slightly complex now, but you're both very clever people, so you can do it, which is you have three themes in the book, but then you have a set of particular policy discussions around 
the things which you think need to be repaired if cities are to thrive. So you talk about health, you talk about crime, you talk about education, you talk about enterprise and regulation. So what I want to do is I want you to talk about these three cross-cutting themes, but with some reference to some of those particular policy areas. So I'll start with you, Ed. So the first theme is, if your theme is around kind of leadership, really, that, that cities will not thrive without the right kind of strong leadership driven by a sense of public service. Tell us about the importance of leadership, but maybe you might want to illustrate it with one or two of those policy areas. Absolutely. So I would, I mean, it is leadership, but it's also public capacity more generally. It's the ability of the public sector or organized representatives of ordinary citizens to actually affect change. And this is an old mantra for me in city government, which is that most of the time capacity trumps policy. Meaning that, you know, if a mayor doesn't have the human capital to implement your brilliant idea, your brilliant idea isn't going to help that mayor very much. And most of the time, the mayors are hanging on by their fingers to try and get something done. So let's let's talk about some examples of this in terms of capacity. So example number one is just America's capacity in healthcare. So the UK has, as you know far better than we do, a fair amount of public capacity through the NHS. The U.S. spends an enormous amount of money on healthcare, right? Not just private spending, but it, it has an enormous public commitment to things like Medicare and Medicaid. But it does so with almost no associated public capacity, meaning the number of bodies that are actually directing that money are incredibly small. Because the people who crafted this policy in the 1960s came from this curious American tradition of Southern Democrats who were very happy to spend money to help poor people in particular, elderly as well, but they didn't like a big Washington, right? They, they came out of this sort of anti-Washington tradition that meant that they were ready to throw money at the problem, but not to actually give Washington the capacity to actually take on, on problems. So that's, I, I think, a, you know, that's one example of this sort of shared strength. A, a similar example would be in the area of policing. So unlike the UK, the US really does have a policing crisis of the first magnitude going on. Now, it is on one level an urban triumph that America's cities are much, much safer than they were in the 1980s. And this is not just safety for the privileged. This is, you know, far lower death rates to homicides among, you know, poor African-American youths than we had 30 years ago. And yet, This urban triumph has been accompanied with mass incarceration and, you know, millions of people who are treated shabbily by the police. Now, it is sometimes acted as if we are going to solve this problem by simply defunding the police. But I know of no evidence to suggest that shutting down the police is a way to promote public safety. And indeed, we have good evidence from our colleague Roland Fryer and Tanaya Devi that after pattern or practice investigations that go viral that are related to some sort of racially tinged police incident. After these investigations occur, the police just shut down. They stop visiting particularly poor neighborhoods and crime rates soar, murder rates soar. So we really do need a stronger police force that is actually deeply reformed, which does two things. One of which is it protects, you know, every person from, you know, from homicide or other crimes. The second of which is it treats every person with respect. And this requires more public capacity, not less. It also, I believe very strongly in the the mantra of a management guru, 
Peter Drucker, who famously opined that what gets measured gets managed. And so I think we need to be measuring ordinary citizen satisfaction with the police as much as we are measuring homicides. But these are two areas in which we spend or in the case of police, we lock up far too many, far too many people. We, we have a big government imprint in this, but we do not do so in a way that really has public strength. And we need that public strength as well as the spending. So, David, let's turn to, to another one of these three themes, which is around freedom. You know, you are both, my sense is you're liberals in both the economic and the social, and possibly in the American context, political definition as well. So this point about cities being a crucible of freedom and needing to expand freedom. But, but that's also, I think, linked, isn't it, David, to your point that you make recurrently in the book about insiders and outsiders and the way in which insiders deny the freedom that outsiders need to be able to get ahead. It is absolutely right. And actually, just w- one interesting point on your uh, lead-in, we both, like many economists, have each of us has a strong libertarian streak in the sense that we believe people are very good judges of what they like and dislike. Politically, we're actually from different sides of the spectrum. And one of the interesting things about this book is people will see where it is we agree, and sometimes one is, of us has convinced the other of us, and where we disagree. And we're we're pretty open about things where we say, you know, what we, we may have different views about these things too, but you know, we we still can can talk about them. But you are entirely correct, which is you know, inequality is tolerable if society is working so that everyone has a chance to get ahead. You know, that is not everyone's going to have the same income and not everyone's going to have the same outcomes, but it has to be the case that everyone feels like they have a chance to get ahead. And one of the things that's happened, certainly in American cities and in many cities around the globe, is that once people have made it to the top, they sort of do the equivalent of pulling up the ladder or uh, closing the doors. We see that in the US, you know, many of the areas that are the most productive in the world where people do great things in Silicon Valley or Los Angeles or our hometown of Boston or any other places, in fact, they then make it very difficult for others to move in. They make it onerous to set up a small business. They make it prohibitive to live anywhere. They limit overall housing development. And so you wind up with situations where, you know, it used to be that if you wanted to get ahead, you moved to where the cities were with high wages and stuff. And now no, you can't afford to move there, not even if you're middle class. You have to be extreme upper class in order to afford to live there. People are going elsewhere. They're going to other cities, but there's a large swath of American and other rich cities that have been cut off from people because the insiders have claimed them for themselves over the outsiders. And that is not a very good way to run a city or or run any kind of society. I want to come back to a couple of those points in a moment, but but I want to let the two of you kind of complete the description of the kind of core thesis before I come to some of these kind of things that I was surprised you didn't emphasize as much as as I thought you would. But let's let's get the third theme addressed before we do that. And that third theme is is kind of learning, the need for kind of experimental approaches to policy. Ed, do you want to kind of tell us, I think you particularly say that about education, where you describe a couple of kind of heroic failures to transform the education system. And I think conclude that we need to be deeply committed to improving education and closing the education attainment gap if cities are to thrive, but actually we don't really know how to do it. And so we're going to need to be in this kind of mindset of continuous experimentation. Absolutely. And I, I think having the humility to learn is a crucial aspect of, of effective government in the 21st century. The motivating example f- for us on this was actually Yacinda Ardern and the New Zealand approach to pandemic, where they had a hard lockdown and then they opened up only once they had you know 
evidence that the, that the pandemic was largely gone because they had regularly been testing the asymptomatic. By contrast, in the U.S., where there was no testing of the asymptomatic early on, right, we had a lot, hard lockdown in states like Florida and Texas. And then, you know, we decided to stop that. And boy, we were, uh, you know, it's like we shouldn't have been remotely surprised that the, that the pandemic then returned. Making decisions with knowledge is just a whole lot better than making decisions without knowledge. And that really requires learning first. In the case of education, I think that that's vital. And there, there are two aspects in which we're, you know, ways in which we can be ignorant. One of which is knowing just how to make the individual classroom experience of an individual student better, especially given that, you know, students are so different. They come with different backgrounds. They they start from such a different place. They have such different cultural norms. And that means that, you know, the learning that we may have from one set of students in one setting may not work all that well for a set of students in a different setting. The second type of learning, which is hard in the U.S., and this is more of a U.S. statement than a U.K. statement, is because of the nature of our federal system, we have very little ability of the federal government to, you know, really strongly control what happens at the local level. You have state governments in the middle and local school boards are highly empowered. And yet we really do need a national commitment to fighting inequality in the U.S. And schooling is the most important thing that the federal government does to to reduce societal inequities. And so we've had these, you know, very brave, very well-meaning, not stupid attempts in the Bush 43 administration was no child left behind. In the Obama years, it was raised to the top, both well-designed federal attempts to fix schooling, both really largely unsuccessful at, at eliminating American inequities on any kind of major scale. And so going forward, I really think we have to embrace a learning ethos that involves having a major league federal commitment to funding schooling, but one that involves constant experimentation. And I think given the difficulties of getting um, the school establishment to change, ideally many of these experiments would wrap around existing schools, would provide vocational training skills, you know, after school, on the weekends, over the summer, would do so in a way with randomized controlled trials and, you know, ideally even, you know, pay for performance because you can actually test whether or not someone knows how to be a plumber or a programmer at the moment of graduation. And so we really have to do what we did when we made a national commitment to the space race, which was we decided this was important, but we sure as heck didn't know how to put a person on the moon when we started the space race. We recognized that we really need to start with learning. And I recognize that that's difficult given the sort of need to have sound bite related politics that says, I know the answer, I'm going to charge in and do it. But that is just so far away from what good government actually looks like that we really do need to have a mind shift on this. So I'll tell you a sobering story about England, which you can add to the next edition of the book, which is that we have a, a great organization called the Education Endowment Fund that was given a lot of money. And its job was to scour the world to find out the best evidence on what works in schools. And it did that. And it looked at metadata. And it produced probably one of the most compelling single slides that I've ever seen, which I've also seen at innumerable education conferences and events. And this was just described as the EEF toolkit. And what they did very simply, and I think the two of you would absolutely love this, is they said, look, here's the intervention. I don't know. It could be anything from homework for primary school age children to one-to-one tuition to classroom assistance to whatever. So here's kind of 20 or 30 interventions. 
And there's three statistics we're going to give you. Number one, their cost. So this was kind of a pound sign, and it could be one pound or up to five pounds. So a very expensive one would be five pounds and would be one pound, represented as one pound. The second thing we'll tell you, which is represented by a padlock and the number of padlocks from one to five, is how strong is the evidence. So one, not much evidence, five, a lot of evidence. And the third is how many months does the evidence seem to suggest that this intervention adds to educational attainment. Absolutely beautiful, incredibly simple, incredibly clear. The depressing thing is, actually, even though so many people have seen this and read it and it's so authoritative, the degree to which it's actually influenced what goes on in the classroom is still pretty small. So, you know, there's something here that we've got to understand, which is not just what works, but how you spread good practice, which I think has been an enormous problem for public sectors everywhere. Anyway, that's uh, uh, not to say we should give up experimentation, but just to recognize how difficult it is. You know, I just, I just want to weigh in on that. I think it is so important that if you, if you experiment and you don't rigorously evaluate, it's like it never happened. Yeah. And so the need to sort of spread the knowledge and to have a learning culture is just absolutely vital. Yeah, I just don't think we know. I mean, I just don't think we know enough about what is it that leads to practice to spread and not to spread. I mean, I think we know quite a lot about what works and what doesn't work, but we don't know, as it were, about what works in what in spreading things and what work, doesn't work in spreading things. So that's something we've got to do more. more. And I think it's probably because what is sometimes called the immunity to change, which exists in all systems, that immunity varies from place to place. Sometimes it's political, sometimes it's cultural, sometimes it's to do with capacity. And that's why it's very often difficult to do this. Anyway, that's a different subject, fascinating though it is. So let me let me kind of turn to the three things that I thought you might, I, I felt you underplayed, and maybe this is just a, I don't know, UK perspective. But the first is, you, you talk quite a lot in the book about housing and, and about the way in which this insider-outsider problem, and, and really what you, you talk about most, I think, is kind of regulation, planning regulation that stops new housing and stops high-rise housing, stops us increasing housing densities, and that that's a problem in terms of restricting the scope for social mobility and for cities to be you know, inclusive and diverse. You don't talk nearly so much, though, about kind of the hoarding of assets, which I think is a, a big part of this, that people don't own houses now for a place to live. They own houses as an investment vehicle. And if I look at the UK, you know, we've got, for example, twice as many bedrooms as we have people in Britain. If I look at the street I'm living on in Clapham in South London, these, you know, houses are worth 1.2, 1.3. Most of them have only got two, you know, middle-aged people living in them. So it isn't part of the story about what we do to try to stop housing being used as a kind of form of asset accumulation by increasing property taxes, for example, or other steps. Because as long as people hoard property, they have much more space than they really need. That That's, that's going to be an impediment, isn't it? It's an interesting question. It's very hard to imagine what I mean, you're you're trying to. I mean, the, the goal is to get more people in the existing space, and the sort of primary shift that happened in the U.S. happened really in, in big cities in the '70s, where city populations declined almost everywhere because household size has decreased. And it's very hard for me to imagine that as long as you have a housing stock that's made overwhelmingly of single-family detached houses, that we're going to go back to a world in which there are, you know, multiple, what are now multiple households living in the same thing, in the same 
home. So that's, that's, you know, having grandparents living in there or having just larger families. So it's certainly true that there are, we're consuming a lot more housing space than we used to. And in fact, the gulf between the UK and the US is enormous on this, right? I mean, the, the typical US household, this data is a little bit old, but the typical US household has something like 800 square feet per person. That's almost double the typical UK household. So our, our housing stock is, is absolutely enormous. And it's even true among the poorest fifth of Americans, which is something like 750 square feet per, per capita. But I can't imagine increasing our property taxes, which are already reasonably high in the US, that tends to get reflected pretty quickly in sort of lower housing prices. And it's hard to see how that exactly gets multiple families to double up in what used to be single family detached housing. I suppose my thought is that if property is more intensively taxed. You don't want to be in a property that's too big for you. You will move your downscale to property that's more appropriate for you, which might be a new build. And then families that are in overcrowded accommodation who can't afford to move up, and that will in some ways reduce the value of those larger properties. And then in larger families, we move into them. So we just have a kind of misallocation. We have a lot of people in overcrowded housing and a lot of people in with space they don't need. So, so overcrowding is just not a US issue. Right. I mean, the problem is not that you have too many people living in, in very small homes. The, the problem is they're in the wrong places. Right. So the problem is we have too many homes in Detroit and not enough in San Francisco because, you know, Detroit was built for 1.85 million people, the, the central city, and now there are less than half than that amount. And I think there are elements of that that's true in, that are true in the UK as well, in the sense that, you know, you do not have a housing shortage in the north of, of England. You have a housing shortage in greater London. And so the, the issue of sort of how to get more space for households in the areas that are most productive really feels to me like it's, it's a supply side issue that, you know, raising property taxes in greater London or in New York, I'm not against that. In fact, I've actually argued for raising property taxes in greater New York, but I think that that does close to nothing to fix New York's affordable housing problem. You know, one of the things about the U.S. is we often have policies, tax policies or other policies that sort of lock people into their houses. So, you know, in California, we your property tax doesn't change after you buy the house, so therefore you stay in it forever. Capital gains taxes are not paid if you pass them on to your kids and so on. So we sort of do lots of things that make people be sticky in their decisions. And then unfortunately, we get some people who don't move. And then we say, well, how come you're not moving? And of course, because we created all these policies that make it difficult. And, and that's something that's just a, the part that's caused by public policy is a real waste. Yeah. Okay. It was really interesting to see those kind of contrasts and similarities as well. So let me turn to another thing that, now this must've been a decision you two, because you don't really say a great deal about kind of sustainability in this book, which is kind of interesting because obviously climate change is a threat to cities, like it's a threat to absolutely everything else. And it would be difficult to imagine a book about the future of cities that didn't major on that. But you it's not something you want to talk about particularly. I'm fascinated by that. My view is that we could only handle one of the four horsemen of the apocalypse at, at, at a time. Uh, so in no sense should this be taken as being a, a decision to, to minimize the importance of climate change. I wrote my previous book, Triumph of the City, has a whole chapter on you know cities and climate mitigation and it, that sort of emphasizes the data on how you know living in dense urban areas involves less driving, involves smaller homes that use less carbon that require less home heating during the winter and home cooling during the summer. And so cities are part of the solution in terms of the the mitigation side. 
I would say going forward, I am more currently obsessed with the adaptation side, particularly in the cities of the developing world, where you have low-lying cities that are incredibly vulnerable to major flooding events that you know we should absolutely expect. I'm not sure that I have anything all that much to add to that issue right now. It's something that I, I plan on spending a fair amount of time over the next three to five years in, in understanding. And I can easily imagine writing my next book entirely on climate change in cities. But I think we just didn't think we could take that on as well as pandemic here. Okay, I get that. So the reason that interested me, though, partly because it links to my final point, which is that, I don't know, I think a kind of critique of liberals, which which might explain why both economic social liberals have been on the retreat for quite a few of the last years in the face of kind of both left and right populism, is that liberals tend to kind of view the world in a rather flat way. We, we, we tend to kind of treat the world as though the same things, the same kind of policy combinations work everywhere. And that if everyone could follow the same basic template of this kind of combination of social and economic liberalism, then, you know, everywhere would thrive. But actually, places are very different, and what places want is very different. And so, the other thing I, I was kind of surprised not to see was that for a book about cities was was that one of the great things about cities is 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 the scope they've got for what might be called experiments in living, for being very different from each other, for for people choosing to be in a in a city A because it does emphasise sustainability in arts and it isn't particularly economically dynamic, but it's just got a very high kind of quality of life. But city B may be a city which focuses on entrepreneurialism and and absolutely providing really easy ways to set up a business, build a house. It's a deregulatory kind of utopia. Isn't that what we need as well? And this links to your point about learning, that, that one of the great things that cities can offer is that they can do things in very different ways. And maybe the future is a, a future where we can we can choose where we want to live a little bit more based upon the, the particular kind of values of that place. So it is absolutely true that both across cities and within cities, right, Giving people different options is a huge function of having a successful urban landscape, right? That in fact, cities at their best should be about enabling people the freedom to choose the neighborhood that they want to live in, to choose the social milieu that they want to live in, to choose the culture that they want to live in. I think that's absolutely right. And different people want different things. So there's no part of what I am you know, saying that in any sense pushes back on that. I think of that as being, by the way, a deeply liberal viewpoint, by the way. Just, just one that says that what you really want to do is enable people to have lots of different options to choose from. And I think that's exactly that's exactly right. And it's even more so when we look at the, you know, the overall urban landscape across the planet. I would say, though, that the the pandemic didn't exactly, while I certainly have, you know, said things like that very loudly in other places, and I certainly believe them very strongly. The pandemic didn't feel to me, didn't feel, I think, to us, like it was a moment for emphasizing the values of classical liberalism. I think we don't get away from it when we're talking about, you know, the the rules that artificially bind the small-scale entrepreneurs who are unable to flourish in, in America's more over-regulated cities. We don't get around it when we're talking about things that create high housing prices. Although in the case of, of housing, I think there's more of a case that different cities need different amounts of housing regulation. The case for cost-benefit analysis around housing regulation, that is in fact universal. But different places will value and should value their historic landscapes more than more than others. And I, for, for example, find it much easier to take a sort of very full-throated pro-deregulation view about housing in the U.S. than I do in the U.K., just because we have so much less of a, you know, magnificent architectural legacy to protect. 
But, you know, the the elements that are about fighting disease, the elements that are about fighting crime, I see these as about things that are more common than different. I don't think there are a lot of cities that think having high murder rates are a great thing. And since high murder rates particularly affect the, the children of the of the disadvantaged, I think focusing on the sort of common need to protect those children is a legitimate thing. Similarly, right, you cannot have a city-specific response to a global pandemic, right? That just doesn't work. And so there are elements in the current crisis, which is both about, you know, the sort of need to sort of create more equity and the need to protect our world from pandemic that feel like they're not John Stuart Mill moments. They're moments of, you know, trying to come up with this shared public capacity to protect our cities and our children from harm. Yeah, I get that. And I I think that, you know, one of the things that's fascinating about cities is that is that some of them have done really well in choosing a vision for themselves as cities, as healthy cities, or as cities that are going to prioritize education or arts or, or now being kind of carbon neutral or whatever. Now, sometimes those things are superficial, they're symbolic, they don't really get very far, there's cynicism about them. But sometimes they really do help to provide a city with a sense of identity and, and common purpose. And I think that when you think about this point you make in the book about experiments in particular, that that encouraging cities to say, well, what is the thing you really want to be an innovative about? What is the thing you want to be different about? What is the thing you want to be known for? That is a way we can accelerate learning in our cities and in our countries and across the world. I think that's right. Many of the common themes, though, resonate across areas. That is, one of our themes in the book is that if you want to do better, you have to experiment and you have to be willing to fail and learn from it and move on. And That's true whether you want to be a city known for the arts or a city known for vocational training or a city known for developing new software code or a city where you make movies or whatever it is. And so I don't think we're trying to shoehorn cities into anything other than saying, here are some of the things that we know about how to be the best version of yourself. And oh, by the way, these are things that are really essential to everyone's health. So everyone, we all have to agree we need to deal with some of these things. David, Ed, it's been great talking to you. It's a wonderful book, Survival of the City, Living and Thriving in an Age of Isolation. We've only scratched the surface of your arguments today, but I've really enjoyed talking with you. And thank you for joining me. Oh, thank you so much for having us on. It's been been lovely for us as well. Thank you. Thank you so much. That's it for this episode of Bridges to the Future. We'll be back soon with more insights and analysis. But if you've enjoyed this conversation, I'd be so grateful if you could rate and review it in your podcast app. But for now, thanks from me, Matthew Taylor. This was a Tempo and Talker production for the RSA. We are the RSA. We enable the game changers of today to shift systems, challenge norms, and create impact where it's needed most. Visit thersa.org approach to find out how. And let's make change happen.